Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 1, Episode 6, Babylon. In 1964, Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan published his book, Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man. He discussed the impact of the medium or form of any communication, and suggested that the character of a medium carries its own subtextual meaning. From this discussion originated his famous phrase, the medium is the message, one repeated by Joan Holloway in episode 6 of Mad Men, Babylon. McLuhan argued that content is the juicy piece of meat carried by the burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind, and Babylon is perhaps Mad Men's most subtextually rich episode to date, one which subverts the idealism typical of television to present themes of desire and hopelessness. Babylon takes its name from the capital city of the ancient Babylonian Empire, which survives today in Hilla, Iraq, about 85 kilometers south of Baghdad. Founded between 2334 and 2279 BC, Babylon rose to prominence in the ancient world, growing to more than 200,000 people. The city flourished as a center for mathematics, astronomy, and architecture. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, constructed during the Neo-Babylonian period, were considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But Babylon's history is one of constant strife, most notorious for its cycle of conquest and destruction. It was embroiled in conflict for centuries, occupied by various empires that subjected its people to slavery and exile. After falling into disrepair, Babylon was considered lost until the early 1800s, when excavators revealed some of the city's original ruins. Babylon has also become an enduring cultural symbol. Originally translated to mean Gate of the Gods, the name Babylon has come to suggest a diverse metropolis. The city is heavily linked to religion, most notably in the Hebrew Bible. It's first mentioned in the book of Genesis, where humanity unites after the great flood, learning to speak a single language and building a tower tall enough to reach heaven, the eponymous Tower of Babel. In Genesis, this plan is halted by God, who scatters humanity across the earth and creates different languages. The book of David also describes Jerusalem's destruction by the Neo-Babylonians and the exile of the Jewish people in Babylon. The city is also referenced in the Christian Bible, personified in the book of Revelation, appearing as the Whore of Babylon, riding on a scarlet beast, drunk on the blood of the righteous. Through these stories, Babylon has come to symbolize oppression, exile, and the struggle against worldliness and evil. Appearing as the sixth episode of Mad Men's first season, Babylon could be taken as an examination of the hopeless longing of exile, the yearning for something that cannot be. The episode treats this theme through its carefully woven depiction of relationships in turmoil, some known and some new. We begin with Don making breakfast in his kitchen, the plop of frozen orange juice a detail insisted upon by producer Matthew Weiner to evoke the nostalgia of the 60s. Don takes his tray from the kitchen, walking shakily through his dining room and picking up a newspaper with peanuts printed in color on the front page. He grins and moves to the stairs, but steps on a wheelow, the magnetic space wheel toy introduced in 1953. Don slips, tumbling backward down the stairs, where he witnesses a younger version of himself. The younger Dick Whitman is called by his uncle Mac Johnson and reluctantly walks into the Draper's dining room to see his newborn baby brother Adam. Dick looks at Don as the camera pans to him at the base of the stairs, the pieces of a broken plate scattered around him. Sally finds Don and screams frantically as Betty rushes to help. That night, Don and Betty arrive home with the children. Sally carries a red balloon as Don and Betty take her upstairs to her bedroom. 
Don sits awake in bed, reading the novel The Best of Everything, adapted into a film released in 1959. Betty comments on the film, which the family has just seen. She remarks that Joan Crawford, by that time in her 50s, looked old. Betty states plainly her fear of growing old, telling Don she'd rather disappear than lose her beauty to old age. She reminisces about her mother's ageless beauty before Don tells her to stop, asking her not to be so melancholy. Mourning is just extended self-pity. The couple's talk turns quickly to flirtation, and Betty asks Don to turn out the light as they're about to make love. But in the dark of night, Betty confesses her loneliness to Don, telling him how much she yearns for him. It's all I think about. Every day. Your car coming down the driveway. I put the kids to bed early. I make a grocery list. I cook butterscotch pudding. I never let my hands idle, brushing my hair, drinking my milk. And it's all in a kind of fog because I can't stop thinking about this. I want you so badly. These were the first lines written for Betty Draper, invented by Matthew Weiner during casting to ensure January Jones that Betty would have a sizable role in the show. The scene reveals Betty's obsession with beauty and ties this to her relationship with her recently deceased mother. Betty fears that her beauty will fade in old age. For the first time, she admits her sexual desire for Don, and though Don's reassurances seem sincere, we know that his other relationships prevent him from fulfilling Betty's needs. This scene is over five minutes long and mostly stationary. The camera's simple framing puts actors John Hamm and January Jones in focus, giving them room to explore their characters, and the dialogue steps uncomfortably towards the root of Don and Betty's marital problems, that she desires from him more intimacy than he can give to her. This repressed tension is conveyed through Betty's nervousness and through visual clues like lighting. The film crew shot this scene late into the night to pull off the moment when Don turns off the light and embraces Betty in the darkness. It's only in this darkness that she lays bare how passionately she longs for Don. The next morning opens at the office of Sterling Cooper. Don enters the conference room and joins Roger Sterling, Nick Rodas of Olympic Cruise Lines, and Lily Meyer and Yoram Shelhai from the Israeli Tourism Bureau. They discuss marketing Israel as a glamorous tourist destination for wealthy people like Don and hand him the book Exodus by Leon Uris. Roger leaves the meeting to find his wife, Mona, and daughter, Margaret, at his office. It's another of Mad Men's It's Awkward When Wives Stop By The Office scenes, one that introduces Roger's 16-year-old daughter, portraying her as a petulant teenager who especially detests her father. The girls have come to Manhattan to get Margaret's hair done, and Mona asks Roger's secretary for help. But Don and Joan pass by, and Joan intercedes, offering to set up an appointment. We then see Roger sitting in bed in a shot frame through an open doorway. As he complains about his daughter, the camera pans into the room and we realize that he's at a hotel, the bathroom door left open in the background. Roger laments his daughter's laziness and inability to find a boyfriend. A haircut is the least of Margaret's problems. She's dated what, two boys? One of them joined the service, the other one committed suicide. Doesn't want to go to college. Doesn't want to work. Not interested in charity. 
I don't know what we did wrong. We gave her everything she wanted, and she's still useless. But while Roger rests half-naked in the foreground, Joan steps into the open bathroom doorway, dressing herself as she reminds Roger that Margaret is young and spoiled, just like him. Joan moves to the bed, where Roger zips up her dress and inserts a raunchy joke about giving Joan a pearl necklace. The two discuss their affair, with Roger pushing for Joan to get her own apartment, where he can see her freely. He confesses how happy Joan has made him, and tells Joan he's thought of leaving his wife for her. But Joan insists on keeping things as they are. Roger, I know as much about men as you know about advertising, and I know that the sneaking around is your favorite part. When Joan brings up her roommate and the other men she dates, Roger suggests she get a pet bird for company. But Joan continues to tease him. She's powerful in this scene, leaning over Roger with authority as she swats away his attempts to make their relationship more serious. The scene ends as Roger moves over Joan, grabbing her leg as they lay in bed. Actress Christina Hendricks auditioned for the parts of Midge Daniels and Joan Holloway. She was more comfortable while auditioning as Midge, but fascinated with the idea of playing Joan, and what she brought to her role changed the arc of Joan's character. Matthew Weiner had intended for Joan to be a less prominent member of Mad Men, but he knew Hendricks' style and confidence could portray another archetypal woman of the time. Joan is a sort of conflicted femme fatale, offering another take on femininity and the lives of women in the 1960s. She occupies a middle ground between housewives like Betty and working women like Peggy. Joan finds power by embracing her sexuality. She's often likened to Marilyn Monroe, and Mad Men would eventually address this comparison in season two. Marilyn? Well, Marilyn's really a Joan, not the other way around. <laughs> in her audio commentary, Hendricks has speculated that Joan is in love with Roger, that she cares for him, but that she won't allow him to take advantage of her. She guards herself by holding the casual nature of their relationship over him, never allowing him control. But her attraction to Roger is clear from the way they embrace. One of Babylon's recurring motifs is physical touch. We see it first in Betty's scene with Don and throughout the episode. Here, Mad Men portrays an affair, a passionate relationship between two adults who share a mutual attraction and that's reflected in Joan and Roger's physical expressiveness. This scene is one of the big reveals of season one. It's shot brilliantly, framed first to make us think that Roger is perhaps at home, talking with his wife, but slowly panning into the room to reveal Joan in the bathroom. And it takes advantage of the provocative sequencing we've come to expect from Mad Men, directly following a scene in which Joan meets with Roger's wife and daughter. Back at Sterling Cooper, Don discusses the Israeli tourism pitch with Paul Kinsey, Sal Romano, and Pete Campbell. It's a scene littered with anti-Jewish stereotypes, as Don strays away from any religious appeals, and Pete once again asks if they should appeal to adventurism, noting Israel's dangerous reputation at the time. In Babylon, Matthew Weiner sought to portray both America's love of the idea of a displaced people and the attitudes of Americans toward Jewish people. By confronting us with views that are true to the 1960s, Mad Men at times forces us to ponder how much things have changed, if at all. Sal eventually comments on the beauty of the Israeli people, tossing a fashion photo atop pictures of starving children and impoverished refugees. This is another of Mad Men's social commentaries, showing the superficiality of mass consumption and the advertising industry, where glamour is highlighted while human struggle is ignored. Don looks at the photo and is reminded of Rachel Mencken. 
He adjourns the meeting and phones Rachel to set up a date. That evening, Don reads Exodus in bed. Written by Leon Uris, the novel was published in 1958 and recounts the voyage of the 1947 immigration ship Exodus and the beginning of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uris wrote from his experience as a war correspondent during the Suez Crisis, and Exodus became widely successful, the biggest bestseller in the United States since Gone with the Wind. It was adapted into a 1960 film starring Paul Newman and has been called the greatest piece of pro-Israel propaganda ever written. Betty enters, commenting on the book as she undresses. She tells Don that the first boy she ever kissed was a Jewish boy named David Rosenberg, mentioning that he was good-looking but gloomy. She then tries to seduce Don, but he's distracted, both by work and by his preoccupation with Rachel Mencken, and can't give Betty what she desires. It's another moment where physical touch is prominent, as Betty moves to Don, kissing him while he leans away, uninterested. He comments about the heat, and Betty suggests they get an air conditioner. But the subtext here reads as Betty once again asking Don to solve their lack of intimacy. The next morning opens in copywriter Freddie Rumson's office, as Freddie discusses Belle Jolie lipstick with Sal and Ken Cosgrove. Freddie is a functioning alcoholic, one of the few Mad Men characters not interested in climbing the corporate ladder. He mixes vodka with his orange juice and laments Belle Jolie's lack of sales, noting how many lipstick shades they sell. Unsure of how to solve this problem, he suggests letting the secretaries of Sterling Cooper try the lipstick to generate some ideas. The women eagerly enter the research room, where they're questioned by Dr. Greta Goodman. It's a bright, well-lit space where the ladies sit in orderly rows, giggling as they try on lipsticks and answer Dr. Goodman's inane questions. Joan supervises the research, strutting around the room in a bright red dress, chosen because it made her resemble a tube of lipstick. She taunts Greta, who continues to question the women and asks Joan to curb her commentary. The office men gather one by one in a dark, smoke-filled room, watching the women through a pane of one-way glass. They pour drinks as they make jokes at the girls' expense, with Ken comparing the mirror to X-ray specs. When Roger enters, Joan moves near the glass, bending over to put out her cigarette, knowing that the men are watching in the adjacent room. Roger looks on powerlessly as the younger men salute Joan's physique. This scene is another of Mad Men's studies of the different worlds of men and women in the 1960s. They're separated only by a pane of glass, but these groups feel worlds apart. The ladies well-lit, laughing innocently, sitting in neat rows, while the men lounge about a dim, smoky room, drinking and making crude jokes. The photography likens this to voyeurism, with one shot framing the entire one-way mirror, almost like a movie screen, with the office women unknowingly playing part and the one-way glass illustrates how men have the power in this setting. But Paul interrupts, noticing that Peggy does not seem as excited as the other women. We then see Peggy looking at the other secretaries, the camera's focus shifting from her to the other women in the shot, as one blots out her lipstick on a napkin, dropping it into a wastebasket. When the research session concludes, Peggy takes the basket, handing it to Freddie Rumson with a surprising insight. Here's your basket of kisses. Basket of kisses? That's cute. Who told you that? What do you mean? Where'd you hear that? I just thought of it. Isn't that what it is? It is, sweetheart. 
Freddy continues to chat with Peggy as Joan watches suspiciously. He asks Peggy which shade she liked, but Peggy points out that having so many choices makes the lipstick feel less personal. Which color did you like? I didn't get the one I liked. Someone took my color. Why didn't you choose another one? I'm very particular. As opposed to the other girls? I don't know. I don't think anyone wants to be one of a hundred colors in a box. Don, meanwhile, meets Rachel Mencken for lunch at the Pierre Hotel in Manhattan. He tries to reconnect with Rachel and asks her about her personal life, but she insists they discuss Don's urgent business. Don discusses his work with the Israeli Tourism Bureau and asks Rachel about Israel, but she becomes displeased, perhaps offended, telling Don that she considers herself more American than Jewish and mentioning the Jewish exile in Babylon, evoking the episode's title. Look. Jews have lived in exile for a long time. First in Babylon, then all over the world. Shanghai, Brooklyn, and we've managed to make a go of it. Rachel continues to reflect out loud, revealing how being Jewish makes her feel excluded, and eventually concluding that Israel is important to her because it represents a spiritual home, a place where she belongs. Here, Mad Men seeks to answer the question, what is home? It's a place where we feel included, where we sense that we belong, and for Rachel, the importance of Israel is symbolic. She admits she can never live there, but feels comforted by the idea of a place where she belongs. Don acts on this idea, suggesting Israel represents a utopia, but Rachel is quick to caution him about that idea. They taught us at Barnard about that word, utopia. The Greeks had two meanings for it, utopos, meaning the good place, and utopos, meaning the place that cannot be. Here, Mad Men has done its historical homework. The word utopia was taken from ancient Greek by Sir Thomas More. It was first borrowed from the Greek word utopos, which translates to no place, and signified any non-existent society. But the English homophone utopia which translates to good place, more closely reflects the word's modern connotations. And Babylon makes an effort to portray this dichotomy, casting our characters' desires against the realities they're forced to accept. Don's lunch with Rachel shows this, as Don reaches for her hand, holding it for a moment before Rachel pulls it back. We've seen the physical embodiment of married love between Don and Betty, and romantic love between Joan and Roger. In this scene, we see forbidden love, an ideal, something both Don and Rachel desire, and in it, we're reminded of exile, of Babylon, hopelessness, a longing for something that cannot be. Rachel returns to her office and calls her older sister. She talks about Don, saying that her father will disapprove because he's not Jewish, but Barbara encourages Rachel to pursue Don, reminding her that she can make her own choices about her personal life. Don returns to Sterling Cooper, where he's met by Sal Romano and Freddie Rumson, they tell Don about Peggy's insight during the research session, and Don acts surprised. They look through Don's office door at Peggy, typing dutifully, and Freddie says, It was like watching a dog play the piano. Later that afternoon, Joan finds Peggy at the filing cabinet and tells Peggy she's made an impression on Freddie. Peggy's been asked to develop creative ideas for Belle Jolie lipstick, though Joan reminds her that she won't receive any extra pay and that she'll need to continue her work as Don's secretary. Peggy is excited, 
and asks Joan if she should thank Freddy, but Joan insists against it. Maybe I should go and thank them? I'm not really dressed. Tomorrow, maybe? No need. They wanted me to tell you. They were very specific about it. Oh. Well, you know what they say. The medium is the message. It's easy to take Joan's tone in this scene for jealousy, but it would be out of character for a woman as confident as Joan, who's introduced many new girls to the office, to grow jealous over something so small. Christina Hendricks has stated that what Joan feels is not jealousy, but rather displeasure. She's tried to take Peggy under her wing, to give advice and show Peggy the ropes. But when Peggy refuses to take Joan's advice, she grows frustrated. Babylon creates a discernible split in the arcs of Peggy and Joan. It's after this episode that their relationship grows into one more of mutual respect, as each strives towards her own goals in starkly contrasting ways. Peggy through her diligence and creativity, and Joan through self-confidence. Don leaves the office and arrives at Midge's apartment. He grabs her as she starts to undress, pressing her against the column before someone knocks on the door. Don moves to the bed, taking off his shoes, but a young man, Roy Hazlett, enters. Don and Roy look at each other suspiciously. Roy asks Midge to go to the Gaslight Cafe, a Greenwich Village basket house that opened in 1958 and showcased beat poets and folk musicians, including Allen Ginsberg, Joni Mitchell, and Bob Dylan. Don is reluctant, but Midge eventually convinces him to come along. Roger and Joan rendezvous at their hotel room, where Roger has bought Joan the pet bird. At first she laughs about the joke, but just before they make love, the bird starts to chirp in its cage, disturbing Joan, who asks Roger to cover it. This could be taken as a nod to the novel Breakfast at Tiffany's, which describes an antique birdcage encountered by its main character, Holly Golightly. In Tiffany's, Holly admires the cage's beauty, but views it as a representation of traditionalism and confinement. This is a less obvious clue about Joan's opinion on relationships. In future episodes, Joan will comment on men and marriage and display more traditional values than expected. Joan views her relationship with Roger as similar to the birdcage, beautiful in its own way, but ultimately imprisoning. And as Roger's attempts to control her become more intrusive, Joan sees the birdcage as a reminder of what could be, of loneliness, and of imprisonment. At the gaslight, Don listens to a man read the newspaper on stage noting to Roy the mediocrity of the cafe's failing artists. Roy comes from New York's budding counterculture and criticizes Don's corporate lifestyle. Don's in advertising. No way. Madison Avenue, what a gas. We all have to serve somebody. Perpetuating a lie. How do you sleep at night? A bed made of money. <laughs> Mad Men's previous episodes built mystery around Don and presented him as a skilled writer, but this scene from Babylon shows us how superficial Don has become. As he argues with Roy, we see the shallowness of his views, namely that wealth is his measure of success. Don's not shown to be religious or political. He seems detached from social or philosophical causes. He's self-centered, preoccupied with his own wealth, with a focus that seldom looks outward at the world, and in this scene, were reminded of how frivolous he's become. After another failed poet reads her work, Don starts to leave, telling Midge that it's too much art for him. But Midge grabs his hand to stop him, insisting he stay for the next performance. A trio of musicians, one of them played by David Carbonara, 
Madman's musical composer, sing the folk song By the Waters of Babylon. As the music continues, a montage of various characters is shown. Betty puts lipstick on Sally in the Draper's bedroom, Rachel chooses between two ties, and Don, moved by the song, gazes contemplatively around the cafe. The episode ends as Roger and Joan dress and leave the hotel, Joan holding the birdcage, and Roger donning a black fedora as they stand, like strangers, waiting on the street. The song fades to silence, interrupted only by the gentle passing of cars. After a series of more focused episodes, Babylon offers more breath. It's perhaps the most ambitious Mad Men episode to date, from its dreamy opening flashback to its melancholy Edward Hopper-esque final shot. In Babylon, we see Mad Men's first attempt to comprehensively portray its world. It reminds us of Don's uncertain past, examines the fading intimacy in his marriage, and rekindles his affection for Rachel. It reveals Joan and Roger's affair, and it creates new opportunities for Peggy. But the final montage and its last shot recall the episode title, Babylon, a place of beauty and turmoil. It's this mix of hope and despair that's so thematic in Babylon, an episode that explicitly mentions utopia, both as an ideal and as something that cannot be. We see this as Don flees a past that endlessly follows him, and as Peggy strives for respect in an era not ready to take her seriously. Yet Babylon's examination of utopia is most effective when it portrays relationships. Much of the meaning is conveyed through Mad Men's depiction of physical touch, through close-up shots of hand-holding and embrace. There's a pull in most of these scenes, an offer of intimacy, a desire to draw closer. It's a yearning for love, to feel like we belong, a feeling so closely related to Babylon, to exile, and to the longing for home. And in each physical interaction, there's an expression of something unfulfilled. So much of Mad Men's story discusses this pull, this journey towards belonging, and in Babylon we experience the journey's futility, with several of the show's characters reaching for what they want, only to be rejected. The episode concludes with several characters in turmoil, pausing for a shot of Don, glancing despairingly around the club, noticing how out of place he is, perhaps struggling to answer the question, who am I? It's easy given its ending to view this episode as foreboding. The final scenes are a melancholy reminder of utopia and futility, but Mad Men portrays this sadness so elegantly, with Roger and Joan waiting in the darkness, like strangers, lit by the hotel canopy, as the folk band's soulful hymn fades into the quiet passing of cars on the street. We talked about Mad Men's The Medium is the Message reference. I think we can view Mad Men's presentation as a transformative message itself. We're reminded throughout the episode of desire and futility, of the difference between utopia and utopia. But through its stylized portrayal, Babylon suggests that there's beauty in longing, that perhaps we can appreciate the ideal, even if it cannot be. Hi everyone, 
Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd like to encourage you to follow us to be notified when new episodes arrive. I'd also encourage you to leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also contact me with any feedback at madmendeconstructedpodcast at gmail.com. I'll leave a link in the episode description.